Ephesians 6, 16, 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is a reading of God's word. Please see it. We are on the helmet of salvation. And when we think about armor, the helmet is something that we can very easily take for granted because we don't really notice it as much. Well, in some sense you do. It depends on if it's a Trojan helmet and it has a big feather on the top. But generally speaking, helmets aren't the most glamorous parts of the armor. In fact, even in our current day, people don't like wearing helmets. We don't like wearing face masks, let alone a helmet. I know that for some, for some of us, when we go bike riding, uh, sometimes it's tempting to not want to bring your helmet or to wear a helmet. But a helmet is very, very important. Arguably, it protects the most important part of your body, your head. And perhaps some of you know of people who have even been injured because they weren't wearing a helmet, whether it's a motorcycle or a bicycle or on a construction site. So helmets have a very, very significant role in protecting you. Spiritually speaking, the helmet of salvation has a critical role in protecting you from the enemy's schemes. When we run into spiritual battle, we need this helmet. It protects our head. And I'll describe why that is the case. But specifically, it protects our head in three ways. First, it protects our head against laziness. Second, it protects our head against weariness. And third, it protects our head against doubts. So laziness, weariness, and doubts. I want to first describe in what way does the helmet of salvation protect our head against laziness? When Jesus was encountered by some teachers of the law in Mark 12, they asked him, what are the greatest commandments? And he responded with the first great commandment. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so the question that I have for you in light of this concept of the helmet of salvation is, how do we love God with all our mind? What does that look like? What does that look like to pursue the knowledge of God with our mind? There's one book of the Bible that focuses a lot on that question, and it's actually the book of Proverbs. Proverbs in chapter 1 tells us why the writer of Proverbs wrote Proverbs. In chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Proverbs says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. So Proverbs writes, the writer writes Proverbs to instruct, to guard and protect the mind and to help a person to be wise. And what is opposite of that, what wars against that is something like Proverbs 13, 4, which says this, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. 
Notice, according to this verse, it says that laziness craves, desires, longs for, but gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent, now that person is richly supplied. There's a direct correlation between one's empty soul because of laziness and one's soul being satisfied because of the wisdom to actually apply truth to one's life. Laziness keeps us from understanding wisdom. Laziness causes us, craves within us to want to do what we think is good for us, but in actuality, it's foolishness. And that's so much the message of Proverbs. So when it comes to our pursuit of God with our mind, Proverbs tells us it takes hard work, diligence, and like any muscle, our mind, in a sense, is a muscle. It needs to be exercised. It needs to be fed. It needs to be trained. And spiritually speaking, if we're not doing that on a regular basis, we are susceptible to terrible spiritual attacks. It's never surprising, and it shouldn't surprise us to hear how people who make very little effort to exercise wisdom, knowledge of God, of his word, to make that a regular practice, why such a person slowly begins to turn away from the Lord. Their heart becomes hardened. Their brain goes through a fog, and they're unable to really grab hold of that which God wants them to understand as what is true in this world. It takes that type of effort. And far too often, we make a mistake when, for example, in the story where Jesus calls the little children, he says, let the little children come to me. And it's very easy to think, well, see, you just need to have a a very simple mind. You don't have to think hard to be a believer of Christ. And you can hear that story about little children coming and equate that to simplicity. But that's not what that story is about. It's not a call. Jesus isn't saying, hey, don't worry about doctrine. Don't worry about truth. Don't worry about exercising your mind, thinking hard, challenging yourself, reading and considering complex ideas of God. Some pastors will say to their church sometimes, and I've heard this personally, hey, when you come into this church, you need to check your brain at the door. And it's their call to say that to be a Christian means you don't think. You just feel and experience. But Paul is telling us exactly the opposite in Ephesians. When he tells them this, listen to what he says in Ephesians 4. He says, uh, to all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, and listen to this part, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, is Paul saying that he's contradicting Jesus? When Jesus says, let the little children come to me, is Paul saying, no, 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 don't be children. No, those are two different uses of the idea of children. When Jesus is expressing let the little children come and you must be like these in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying we need to have a heart that is open to him. That is not predisposed based on 
our views and values of the world and close our hearts. We need to believe and to trust that when Jesus speaks, just like a child who trusts their parent, they will come simply because they trust. But that doesn't mean we never exercise our minds. Paul is saying we believe with that type of trust, but we also really delve deeply. We study, we understand, we exercise our minds. We consider every doctrine. And doctrine is a, maybe it's a, it sounds like an academic word, but it's not. It's just meant to be something you believe to be true. Something that is central, a core tenet of who you are. And when you are a person of sound doctrine, you're not tossed to and fro by every cultural pattern in this world. I think most of us know that there are many cultural patterns right now. All sorts of intellectual ideas, philosophical ideas, thoughts. And it's not just academia. It's in music. It's in the arts. It's in politics. It's, it's really pervasive in every single aspect of our lives. It's trying to get you to think about something or someone other than God. That's a doctrine. Doctrine is found on social media. Doctrine is found in anime. Doctrine is found on, in comic books and in cartoons. So let us not think that doctrine is simply a Christian academic word. It's a word of life. And the question is, are you going to be a child tossed to and fro by every single thought idea that pushes you this way and that way? Because if you try to base your life on what is currently popular or valued, you'll never have grounding. Paul is saying that we are no longer to be children because a child will come this way and that way with candy, with a promise of particular toy. And all you need is just small incentives and they'll come running to different places. Paul says that happens when your ideas and thoughts are shifting and there's no central root foundation. And you're susceptible, according to Ephesians uh, 6, of not just human cunning, but of deceitful schemes. The same idea, the same word is used in Ephesians 4 and 6 of Satan's schemes to cause you to believe in this big pile of ideas. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? It means we must be growing in our knowledge and understanding of God's word so that you will not succumb to the schemes of the devil. But we need to battle laziness to do it. And laziness looks like this. Laziness is, see, we tend to think, well, all you need to do is just ask a bunch of questions. If you have doubts or questions, you just ask, oh, so why is the Bible written like this? You know, I've always wondered about predestination or, you know, what causes these 27 books of the New Testament to be the reason why we should believe those books rather than the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter? Why should I... Why should I not listen to Bardurman or other skeptics? And we have all these questions, but laziness sinks in and we never pursue answers. I actually find that to be the problem is that so many of us are so quick to ask questions 
But when it comes to, okay, let's say you're going to ask me a question. I say, oh, I have a great book that will help you to answer that question. And I give you that book. Read this book. What do you do with that book? It goes on your shelf, collects dust. See, we like being skeptics and doubters, haters. But when it comes to actually doing the work of finding the answer, of searching through scripture, hey, I have 20 passages of scripture and here's a commentary. Start reading it. And then let's have a discussion about it. Then you, maybe you do that with your spouse or a friend and get together and, oh, I actually didn't read it. I'm too busy. My friends, that's called laziness. And laziness is a weapon against your head by the enemy and his schemes. We are intellectually lazy and that makes us spiritually lazy. And when we're spiritually lazy, we are we are susceptible to his schemes. So it's no wonder that so many people go to college uh, and when they're high school students, you, you teach, you learn, and we say, maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh, Sam's, his words are too big. I can't understand them. Rather than saying, hey, mom, dad, he used the word morass. What does that mean? <laughs> what does doctrine mean? You know, dis- having discussions and parents... Isn't it easy to be lazy to listen to a message and not say to your kids, hey, so what did you think about that? In what ways do you think you are lazy spiritually? We just go home and just say, oh, out of sight, out of mind. We got that done. We got our checklist done. I, I went to church, watched it on video, and now everything's okay. Satan takes advantage of that. And so all of us are guilty of this, susceptible to the enemy's schemes. For those of you who are in the Mark study, discipleship groups, OT theology, some of you are learning some really difficult things. And it's easy to sit there and say, oh, that's nice, or that's so hard, I don't understand, and that's it. We just deal. Is it any wonder then that when we have this, I don't understand, and then you go to university, to college, or you go to work, or you go and interact with non-believers, and when they start asking those questions again, you've never pursued the answer. Is it any wonder why we slowly begin to doubt and to think, oh, my faith, I don't know if there is a God. I don't know if this Bible is true. Laziness. It is a real weapon of the enemy against. It's one of his flaming arrows. Another flaming arrow sneak attack of the enemy is against your mind is weariness. Satan's schemes are meant to make you to feel tired. It's meant to make you to give up, to stop following Christ. If he can get you to not think if he can get you instead only to feel or to experience, then he has you right where he wants you. He wants you so tired that you feel hopeless. And when you are hopeless, that's when you give up. This is why Paul uses the same metaphor in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Listen to what Paul says. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now you have to really look at that verse and to see the distinctiveness between that use of the metaphor of the helmet and the one that we have in Ephesians. 
because there's a little bit more description. It's described as the hope of salvation, not just the helmet of salvation, but the helmet of the hope of salvation. And what's the difference? Sometimes when Paul refers to salvation, he's referring to the past event of what Christ has done on the cross to save you. So we remember the justifying work of Christ at the cross. But in this instance, Paul is using in 1 Thessalonians a little bit of a different picture of this salvation. It's not past only, but it's a past that looks forward to a future. So what protects your head then, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians, is actually the idea that your salvation of what Christ has done is bringing you to a future hope, the hope of glory. It's the hope that you will have one day with him, life with him. You've been saved for a future. And what what Paul is saying is that that idea of that future hope is what protects your head. And let me give you an example of this. Ian Duguid, who's an Old Testament scholar, he gives the illustration of receiving two letters in the mail. In the first letter, if you received a letter telling you that your grandmother, and let's imagine that she's uber wealthy, she has left you an inheritance of a billion dollars. And you know it's true. It's not phony. It's not fake. It's not publisher's clearinghouse or anything like that. It's true. And then the second letter you receive is from the city of San Ramon. And it has a picture of you smiling on a camera, and it says you are speeding, and it's a $1,000 speeding ticket. So you receive first the billion-dollar letter, inheritance, and then right after, you open the second letter, and it's that $1,000 ticket. How many of you would be really that upset about the $1,000 ticket? Not really. It might bother you a little bit, but not really. Not after, not after your big dance of getting a billion dollars, right? Suddenly, $1,000, which is a lot of money, is not a lot of money. It's nothing. And so you just you throw away the ticket and say, here's, here's $1,000, no big deal. When you know something that you have been given is priceless, so highly valued, such as your eternal salvation, when the hope of heaven is so real to you that it's not some mythology or something that's abstract fantasy, but it is a reality to you, then no matter what small cost you have, it really is nothing. You can bear up the most difficult ideas and challenges of your life because you have the hope of heaven. You have the eternal value of that. Paul describes this for himself so well in Philippians. In chapter 3, it's really his biography, his testimony of faith. But if you can recall, Paul has gone to great lengths in chapter 3, verses 3 on, to describe all of the different records of achievement, worldly achievements, really top-of-the-line achievements that he has. But then he gets to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, and he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what Paul is saying is, I gained a billion (laughs) dollars. And so the thousand dollars that I was, I was clinging to, 
is now rubbish. The thousand dollars of his reputation, his education, his class, uh, his, his family history, all of that compared to the billion dollars is now rubbish. It's, it's dung. And so that protects you. It guards you. It keeps you from the moment you trust Jesus to say, I will follow you. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. When you do that, you're able to ward off the flaming arrows of weariness. We do grow tired and weary sometimes of reading God's word. You will tire of other Christians. You will tire of the church. You will grow weary of waking up on Sunday mornings and whether you're coming here or turning worship on TV. And all these feelings of weariness over time has this feeling of, I want to give up. Why do this? It will not cease as long as you're a Christian because the enemy is at you. He is trying to get you to give up. But put on your helmet of salvation. Remember the cost of what Jesus paid to save you. Remember the future that you have in the hope of the glory of being with God forever. And when that happens, you can sustain anything. You will not grow weary in doing well. Let me just give one final illustration. Let's say during Thanksgiving, a feast is prepared. Thanksgiving is coming soon. And you're, someone's cooking up a, a grand Thanksgiving feast. You smell it. It's all over, but you're so hungry. In fact, you've, you've starved yourself. You haven't eaten breakfast and lunch and you're getting closer to dinner time. You can smell it, but you're so hungry. So you see a bag of old moldy stale chips and you're so hungry. You just decide, I'm going to eat those chips. I don't care. So you start going into your closet, hiding away from everybody and you're shoveling all these chips into your mouth. It, you're, you're so full and so nauseous that now dinner comes and this huge, delicious feast is laid before you. And you can't eat a single morsel of it because you've indulged yourself in garbage. You see, putting on the helmet of salvation helps us to remember and to stay focused and to prepare ourselves for the feast to come, the eternal feast with our Savior to come. It keeps us from taking part in moldy, disgusting, stale potato chips when there's a huge feast awaiting us. Our Savior has done a lot to dine with you. And you just have to push through and wait on him. He will not let you down. But Satan wants to stop you. He's doing everything he can to say, take pleasure in that. Take part in that. And when you do, your heart for the Lord grows cold. But it is stale, moldy, disgusting potato chips. The third attack against your mind is doubts. I remember following a, re a retreat in college. So many students, friends of mine, verbally professed to believe in Jesus Christ. And you know how those, some, if you've ever been to a, some college retreats, especially when I was younger in college, they were very emotional times. A lot of roller coasters, a lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of emotions. Turn off the lights as fast as possible and play really slow 
music. <laughs> Get people to cry on the last night. Well, a lot of people raise their hands and say, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus. A few weeks later, most of them turned away from Christ. And I remember having conversations with a lot of friends of mine and asked, why? Why are you turning away? And all of them would say the same thing. I don't know if my experience was genuine. I doubt the Bible. I doubt whether there is a God. I doubt Jesus. I, I think that time was just some manipulation. There was some of that too. So there's reason to be skeptical. But are these just random thoughts of skepticism? Well, if you believe Paul in Ephesians 6, you know they're not random. They're Satan's schemes. Theologian Sam Storm says this, in every instance of serious and sustained demonic attack that I have encountered, the individual was plagued with doubt concerning his or her salvation. If you want to know what spiritual attack is like, it is not demon possession. It is not haunted houses. I'm not saying we've already talked a lot about that. But if you want to know spiritual attack, it is doubting your salvation. That is by far the greatest means of attack that we can see manifested in people, Christian, non-Christian alike. And we have to really consider how to help such a person. Because when someone says, how do I know that I am truly saved? First and foremost, and we'll talk about it coming soon as we need to surround this person with prayer. God has to protect them. But you need to also surround yourself with prayer as well as put on the helmet of salvation. These doubts of salvation come from different angles and different levels. One angle is you're not worthy to be loved by God. And when you consider perhaps besetting sin, some sin that is ongoing in your life, or some way in which you have followed the Lord and then something bad really happens and you do something terrible, something that you're ashamed of, something that you would not want anyone to know. And the first thought that comes to your mind is, there's no way God could love me still. My friends, that is, that is a, a, a demonic attack. If people only knew just how bad your sins really are, and this, of course, is surrounded by people saying just how bad your sins truly are relative to their sins. So you have yourself condemning, and then you have people around you saying, wow, you're really bad. That's so bad. You know, in a church, we should never be at a place where we say, your sins are so much worse than mine. Like, I would never do that. I might not do A, but I know I will do B. And trust me, there's between A and B, there's no real difference before God. But we're so quick to do that. That's not just our own sinfulness. That's also an enemy attacking and saying, make sure you make people feel really bad about how evil they are relative to how good you are. We get so worked up by haunted houses and demonic possession when we really see Satan's evidence most when uh, Satan most present when we are doubting salvation, when we're doubting our own salvation, when we're doubting sometimes even other people's salvation. Also, 
Satan and his attacks makes you intellectually doubt your salvation. Makes me, makes us think that we've only have emotional experiences. Makes us think that there are really smart people in the world, scientists, philosophers, skeptics, atheists. And when you hear their argument, you think, could there, there's no answer to those things. That's so smart. I tell you, if you were to take the best, uh, atheistic answers to life, and the best Christian answers to life, of the most smartest of the two, you cannot say, you will not say, well, one is smarter than the other, more intellectual. I shared a few weeks ago what I was, I've been, I was on a sort of a, a kick of watching a bunch of Christian YouTube uh, atheist debates. And as I was listening to both sides, if you listen, you don't hear the atheistic argument as having the better intellectual argument. But far from it, I actually think the Christian argument just on the basis, and granted, I'm biased, obviously, but it did, it really doesn't sound any lesser intellectual when you hear the Christian side than the atheistic side. So, but it's going to be the enemy's attack to make you always feel as though the one question that God has not thought of has been asked by so and so with a PhD in metaphysics. Or in, you know, in nuclear uh, physics or nuclear chemistry or, you know, astronomy or whatever it might be. That person who graduated from these universities has that answer. And there's now Christianity is doomed because of that smart person. Atheism and agnosticism takes a lot of faith. They just don't want to admit it. It's rooted on the faith belief system that Scripture is untrue, and God is a lie. And when you're convinced, nothing can convince you otherwise. That's called faith. And Satan works very hard to keep us hardened to Christ and his gospel. Our minds are truly like a Fort Knox of Satan's stronghold. Unless God, who is the only one who could penetrate that guarded heart, he can do that. But until that happens, we're not going to convince someone to trust in him simply by our intellectual ideas. It doesn't mean we don't try, though. But I will say this. Never think that the Christian life and the Christian philosophy and worldview has lesser answers theologically, philosophically, than the non-Christian life. Paul's telling us that what protects us in our doubts is the assurance of salvation. Listen to Romans 8, 31 through 35. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Salvation, Paul's saying salvation means someone greater than us, someone stronger than us, someone smarter than us, someone more powerful than us has saved us. And that salvation gives us assurance. You see, we tend to think we need to be assured of our salvation. And we need to somehow work ourselves up to it. But really, we have it backwards. Our salvation, which we know, just we just believe. Because we have the truth of God's word. It never lets us down. We can trust it. And once we believe that, that salvation assures us 
of our doubt, from doubting. Salvation assures our salvation. And you might think, well, that's, that's a circular argument. But there is no truth in this world that doesn't use, in some sense, a circular argument. An atheist will always use a circular argument. It's the same thing. The question is, which one are you going to believe? And if you believe that God is true, then that is what guards your heart, what keeps you going. Listen to what Isaiah 59, 17 says. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The he in Isaiah is Jesus, is the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. And we know that it's, here's the promise. See, because you're all thinking, well, how do I do this? You don't, ultimately. Jesus has done it. He put on the helmet of salvation. He's the one who fought Satan and won. He's the one who saved us. He put it on so that now we're able to do that. His head was bloodied. He did not protect his own head so that our head would be protected. Do you see what he went through for us? That is what protects us from the enemy's schemes. When you lose sight of that, doubts come weariness. All of that comes because we forgot what Christ has done for us. And the enemy tries to rob us of our assurance by causing us to forget the fact that he put on the helmet of salvation for us. Jesus paid the great price so that we would never waver. And we can truly bank on that. Let me close with this story. There was a Chinese evangelist. His name was Wang Ming Dao. He was imprisoned for his faith in Jesus Christ. But right after his imprisonment, under pressure, he renounced his faith. He was freed. But he was so tormented by his renouncing of Jesus that he started walking through the streets of Beijing saying, my name is Peter. My name is Peter. I've denied my Lord. So Mao, this is during the Cultural Revolution, put him back into prison. He remained in prison this time for 18 years. He said every day in prison, he woke up and he sang one hymn, one song. And it was the hymn by Fanny Crosby. And it says this, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt this tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. You know, at first the guards, they tried to stop him from singing. They beat him, they tortured him. But he refused. He kept on singing. They eventually just decided, I forget it. They gave up and he kept on singing. Gradually, as the years went by, they would gather near the opening of his cell and they would listen to him sing these words. Jesus doeth all things well. Eventually, they began to ask him to sing to them. 
and to teach them the words of the song. You know, Satan, he's a very, very evil, cunning schemer. He does everything and shoots every flaming arrow to cause you to grow lazy, to give up, to doubt. But when we take up that helmet of salvation, like Pastor Wang, who initially succumbed to doubts, once he remembered who had saved him, then even in the most darkest place, he remembered that Jesus doeth all things well. And when we take up that salvation, Satan has nowhere to go. He flees. He runs. So Christian, are you weary? Are you doubting? Are you lazy? Remember the cost. Remember the thorns. Remember his bruised, bloodied head so that your head would be protected from all of those things. And you can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. And we know that, Jesus, you do all things well. We thank you that it is by the very cross of Christ that we have our hope. Thank you for the thorns on your brow, Lord Jesus. And because of that pain and that sorrow, and most of all, that forsakenness that you experienced on that cross, we are saved. And it is that very salvation that protects us from laziness and weariness and doubt that causes us to succumb to the enemy's schemes. We come to you, O Lord, needing you above all things and all else. May we not bury ourselves in just satisfying ourselves in the the most disgusting of pleasures that does not last when you have set before us a very feast that you long to dine with us. And we worship you as we come together to celebrate the goodness of our gracious and kind and merciful God. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.